Father, we are grateful for this day to come together and sit under the teaching of your word. Lord, these are ancient words that are, have been tested and have been true, that have been certified by you. And I pray that as we read this ancient book and receive this teaching that is 2,000 years old, that your Holy Spirit uh, will help it to be as real to us now as it was back then. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So to start my sermon, I want to ask you a question. What is the hardest command in Scripture? What is the hardest command in Scripture? Well, here are some candidates. Do all things without complaining. Oh. Do not covet. Abstain from sexual morality. Love your enemies. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, how about this one? Trust God and believe. What do you think about that? Trust God and believe. On a basic level, it seems quite easy to do. We all understand that salvation is kind of binary, right? Either you believe or you don't, that we are saved by the object of our faith, not by the strength of our faith. Right? Do you believe in Jesus? Even if you weakly believe in that, because God is generous and gracious and we're saved by the object of our faith, that does save you. But there is this other sense of faith, a faith that grows, a faith that sustains, a faith that keeps you when all else seems to be against you. This is the faith that is introduced to us in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith, where the author defines faith by saying this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1. Right? Faith is confidence in the promises of God, and it is the conviction to live them out. Right? Faith is the confidence in the promises of God and the conviction to live them out. And without faith... Verse 6, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right? If you don't have faith, you can't draw near to God. You must believe that, one, he exists and that he is the judge, right? The rewarder of your faith. Now, we live in a very cynical age, don't we? Trust no one. Don't talk to strangers. Nowadays, it's very common to have a cynical view of institutions, right? They might be uh, inherently uh, corrupt. There's institutional sin. You look at the proliferation of conspiracy theories, right? We're taught not to trust things. You have to kind of look beyond how they're presented to look past it. Otherwise, you might be a dupe. When you trust someone, you, you put your hope and your confidence in them, and what happens if they let you down? If it's going to be, it's up to me. right? Faith, when you think about it, is a very, very difficult way to live because your confidence is not in yourself. It's in something outside of you. And in the case of Scripture, we are placing our faith in an invisible God who we cannot see. We believe that this God raised Jesus from the dead, and we believe that this God spoke to us 
through this book, which is 2,000 years old, at the newest point, and you're supposed to live that way, like all of it is true. When you think about it, faith is a difficult command. And that's why when we look at the Gospel of Luke, it's fascinating to see the emphasis that Jesus places on the disciples' faith. Remember when the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and there is that storm that's springing up and they're all convinced that they're going to die and they wake up Jesus and, and basically ask him, do you even care? Do something to help us. And, and what does he say? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Later on, he is surrounded by a crowd of, of people desperate for miracles. Jairus uh, prevails upon him to come to his house to heal his sick daughter. And on the way, he is touched by a hemorrhaging woman and immediately her bleeding stops. And he says, hey, who touched me? I felt the power go out of me. And then he tells this woman in Luke eight forty eight, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then when he hears the news that Jairus' daughter has died and obviously Jairus is in distress, call off the miracle, it's too late. He says in Luke 8.50, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Over and over again, you see this emphasis on faith and having faith. Jesus is attempting to grow the faith of the disciples. And when we look at the feeding of the 5,000, it's an interesting miracle because it is the only pre-resurrection miracle that is in all four Gospels. It made quite an impression. And the design of this was more than just feeding the hungry masses. This was an opportunity where Jesus sought to feed their faith. Look at Luke 9, starting in verse 10. If you're not there, please turn there. We'll be camping out. On their return, the disciples told him that all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him and welcomed them and, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, Well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. And there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. <clears throat> and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, this passage comes at a very interesting time in Jesus' ministry. He's over the hill, so to speak. The ministry is starting to, to wind down. 
After this, he will let them know that he is about to die. He has a succession plan in place. And so with his remaining time, he is very intentional about growing the disciples' faith because they'll need it someday, right? I mean, many of us look at the future, and unless the Lord comes back, there's a lot more trials and tribulations to come. People you love will die. You will die. We will suffer. It is imperative that every Christian grows their faith because they'll need it someday. And faith, while it is binary, you either believe or you don't, there is a notion that your faith can grow. In Luke 17.5, after Jesus teaches about forgiveness, the disciples say, increase our faith. Right? We don't have enough faith. Faith is a muscle. It can grow. It can mature. It can develop. And so Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, he does more than just just try to satisfy the hunger of the masses. He's trying to grow the faith of the disciples. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to look through this miracle. I'm going to just survey it initially. And then we're going to recount three ways that Jesus seeks to grow your faith. He grows their faith by recounting God's faithfulness, by elevating their view of Jesus and minister to others. Right? And, and that's my hope for you. You may be doing really well right now. I know for many of you graduates, this is a very exciting time for you. But there will come a season. There will come times of testing. There will come times when some of these things don't make sense. Grow your faith now so that you will be ready for that day. So let's look at the miracle. Starting in verse 10. On their return... The apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So the twelve returned from their internship. I mean, it's pretty exciting stuff. We cast out demons. We healed all these people. We taught about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, tell me about it. And so they go off to Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And we also learned that they withdrew a little bit to a desolate place. This was going to be a time for just him and his disciples to debrief and reconnect. But the crowds had other plans. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Word got around that there were some Jesus sightings around here. Tell me where you can find them. And then people would bring their crippled brother their blind daughter, their uncle who is clearly possessed by a demon. They make the trek because they were desperate to find Jesus. And Jesus, notice he doesn't just say, I'm sorry, I need my privacy right now. Right? He welcomes them. And he does the very same thing that he told the apostles to do. Right? He taught them on the kingdom of God and he began to heal them. Now this is going on. Time's getting away from them, and the disciples begin to look at the angle of the sun, and they see a problem. Verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and, and, came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And so people have traveled by foot. They have left their homes. They have left their provisions behind. In desperation, they want to see Jesus. 
And the disciples have a concern that I think really is commendable, right? All these people are here. It's not safe to travel at night. They need to be fed Jesus, and we need to, to send them away because we're in the desert here. Now, another note that's very interesting is in Matthew, it mentions that the grass was green. Now, the grass is only green in Israel during a very slender sliver of time. This would have been about two months before the harvest, probably around March. Now, when it's two months before the harvest, that means that all your grain stores are pretty low. So this is a growing crisis where the disciples want to send them away to have them fend for themselves, so to speak. But there's not going to be enough food to go around. You have 5,000 men, and we learn elsewhere, and an equal number of women and children. Now, there's some irony here, right? Number one, if you dismiss all those people in a desolate place, the villages and the countryside, that they wouldn't have enough food to provide for them. Secondly, they knew that to feed these people, it would take a miracle. Number three, Jesus is in the process of doing miracles, right? So it's like, okay, go ahead and bring the, uh, you know, the lame kid up here. Okay, go ahead and walk. You know, drives away this fever. Demon is being cast out. And as he's doing all this, the disciples said, send him away because it would take a miracle to feed all these people. Do you see the irony? And so Jesus turned to them and says, you give them something to eat. Now, I say it intentionally because in, in the Greek, it says, you yourselves. Jesus is making a point that you, you, give them something to eat. And so the disciples, um, okay, well, Jesus told us that we are in charge of giving him something to eat. Let's look at our options here. Well, they got a hold of five loaves and two fish. So plan A we share. Okay. That's the equivalent of five pita loaves and two sardines. That won't work. Plan B, we buy the food. But then it says, unless we go and buy the food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. So that is 10,000 people. Can you imagine feeding 10,000 people? Iron Man's hard enough with 700. Philip, the bean counter, informs us that it would take 200 denarii. That's about $16,000 to feed all these people. I mean, that's pretty good math. A buck, 50, buck 60 a person, right? Rice and beans for everybody. Can't be done, Jesus. But then Jesus says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and they had them all sit down. So Jesus orders them to sit down on the grass. We're about to have a picnic. Everybody is in their, their sitting position, and then he calls on them to give him the pita bread and the sardines. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Now, it's interesting the, the mechanism that Jesus uses. He doesn't like put his hand over the pita and the fish like he had some power in and of himself. He goes to God. God, you sent me here in this moment. You have the power 
to feed all these people? I'm going to ask you, Lord, to bless this food, to, to multiply it. And then he divided it up, gave it to the disciples. And the disciples hand it to everyone. Everyone eats to the full. And then verse 16, then he broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples, set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And so they are eating, they are feasting. And in verse 17, and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. There was more food at the end than at the beginning. Now, some people who are very skeptical of miracles will explain away this miracle in this way. Somebody decided to share their lunch and all these people who had these big stores of food were so convicted by this that they shared their lunch and everybody had plenty left over. Now, here's the problem with this. There were 12 baskets of food left over. There was more than they even needed. I mean, let's go back to the Ironman Summit. That is our, that is our big feast, right? This morning at the Ironman Summit, we have 700 men who are going to be showing up. Power goes out. All the food is spoiled. The catering truck from Bobby D's breaks down. That food is gone. Everyone is here, and they're expecting to eat because, frankly, that may be the main reason why they come. <laughs> Not judging anyone, but kind of, but I am. And somebody brings their own lunch and says, listen, I can't eat any of this food because of my dietary restrictions, so go ahead and share it with everyone. Do you think there'd be enough food to go around? I mean, those men eat food like a locust horde. I mean, you do before and after, they just kind of, I mean, and two of my sons are part of those locusts. I mean, they are piling it up and they're eating as much as they want. There's not going to be any food left over. This is clearly a miracle. This is not about having faith in people being moved to share. This is about having faith in Christ who's able to multiply food that's not there. It's exalting the, the power of Jesus Christ. But all of this has a greater point, right? He's bringing his disciples into this. Because he wants to feed their faith. And he does it through a variety of way, means that are good lessons for us. One is to recollect God's past faithfulness. Okay? You recollect, recollect God's past faithfulness. Now, this is done in two dimensions. First of all, the intro to this feeding is that the disciples come back and they share what happened. Remember how when Jesus sent them out, he said, don't take any food with you and don't take any money with you. Why is that? Because the Lord was going to provide for them. Right? The Lord provided for them through hospitality. The Lord gave them power to do this ministry. God's just shown himself to be faithful to do what the Lord had called them to do. That's one. Right? It is helpful. To always remember ways in which God was faithful. I'm sure if you were to look back, were there times where you weren't sure if you'd have enough? You weren't sure how this was going to be pulled off and the Lord was faithful? 
It's good to remember that. But there's a second element. There are spiritual, scriptural overtures that are embedded in this miracle that if the disciples paid close enough attention, they would pick it up. In Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. There are Bible stories given to us to remind us to have faith in the future. They're in a desolate place. There's a large mass of people who are hungry who would need to eat. What situation in the Old Testament would approximate that situation? The Israelites in the desert. And remember what Moses did? God provided manna, bread. He also provided lots of quail, meat. It was within the realm of possibility for a man of God to execute that kind of miracle. There's another miracle. In 2 Kings chapter 4, you have the prophet Elisha. Now, well, Elisha is the successor of Elijah, but there's a difference. Elisha is given a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And as he's ministering, this is 2 Kings 4, 42, a man from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So notice a hundred men, not 5,000 men, and not five loaves and two fish, but 20 loaves of barley and some fresh ears of grain. That was an impossible task. So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Right? That's the same miracle, but Jesus expanded it. When you look through the Old Testament and you see stories of God's faithfulness, has it ever occurred to you that if God was faithful to them, that he would be faithful to you? Israel was wayward. While there were some who were truly redeemed and born again, those who are in Christ are adopted as sons and daughters. If he is faithful to them, how much more would he be faithful to the saints today? You see, one way to feed your faith is to feast on Scripture, to go to the Word, to remember the Word, and to remember that the Word wasn't written to people outside of you. It's actually written to His people, right? These things were written for you. As Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. When you read the scriptures, it's written for you to give you hope. If you want to feed your faith, grow your faith, you have to feast on the word of God. Secondly, as you feast on the word of God, you elevate your view of Jesus. Now, this miracle is bracketed. It's bracketed by, by Herod's question. 
Now Herod, verse 7, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him, right? Who is this Jesus? And then in verse 18 through 20, and, and it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Do you see the parallels there? The running, there's, there's three running theories about Jesus. One, he's resurrected John the Baptist. Two, he is Elijah. And number three, he's one of the old prophets that's kind of come back. Well, what's interesting about this miracle is Herod helpfully, helpfully uh, reminds us that John the Baptist is dead. So that leaves two candidates, right? The prophet of old who's been risen as well as Elijah. Well, the crowds after John, when this miracle happens in John, in John 6, 14, this is their conclusion. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, the prophet of old. And this is a reference to something that we read in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Basically, there's going to be another Moses who will rise up. That was the working understanding, and that is true. And so when Jesus feeds them in a desolate place, he does something that shows himself to be greater than Moses. Do you see that? Jesus is a prophet like Moses, but he is greater than Moses. The other possibility is that it was Elijah, who was taken up to heaven, who would come back. But through this, he shows that he's actually a greater prophet than Elijah because he's able to replicate and improve upon what Elijah's successor, who had a double portion, Elisha, was able to do. Jesus shows himself to be the one that is prophesied by Scripture that is more powerful than anyone who has ever come before. This is to raise and elevate their view of Jesus. And not only just his power and his authority and his majesty, this elevates and raises their view of his compassion. When Moses was a prophet, he, he did great miracles, but what did the miracles do? They judged the Egyptians, right? They judged the Egyptians. When Jesus does miracles at least in this age. He does so because he's moved by compassion. He uses his power to serve and to help and to push back on the curse. In Matthew 14, 13 through 14, and when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And so Jesus is under this impression that he's going to have some time away. He's going to relax. Have you guys ever been there? You guys ever heard the term compassion fatigue? When you're so busy that when somebody has a real need, you say, great, another problem. 
You just labored for a work day, all day. You're working for the building project. Perhaps you are landscaping, fixing the AC, doing what you do. You took your day off and you served the Lord. And when you come home, you think, all I want to do is drink a tall glass of iced tea and watch the Royals game. That's relaxing for some people. Well, not anymore, but work with me. And then you get a phone call from a needy family in the church whose AC went out. And you know that tomorrow is going to be a 100-degree day. Right? Have you been there? So what's interesting is when Jesus sees this crowd, he welcomes them. Of course you can join us. Verse 14, when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them, right? That was his heart towards them. He didn't have compassion fatigue. Didn't matter how busy he was, he had limitless compassion. And what's interesting about this word compassion is that uh, the Greeks understood that your emotions were tied to your, to your body in some way, right? And we kind of do the same thing. Like if somebody's really sad, they have a broken heart. If you're really nervous, you have a pit in your stomach, And so if he felt compassion, he felt compassion in your bowels. This was a whole-bodied experience where he looked at the need of others. He had compassion on them. He had mercy on them. He wanted to minister to them. This speaks of the, the love of Christ, right? Jesus is not only majestic, he's powerful, but he's loving. In the words of Thomas Watson, we may force the Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. That is his natural disposition towards his people, right? If you want to feed your faith, you don't want to look at the scriptures, read about the God of scripture, you read about Jesus. And the higher you view of Jesus, the easier it is to have faith in him, agreed? And then thirdly, you minister to others. Remember, Jesus is in the process of training his disciples, right? He teaches them, he shows them, and then he makes them do the work. He makes them do the work. Remember, he says, you give them something to eat. You will be participants in this miracle. And they did. But the type of work that they were to do was to meet the needs of other people. They were to do a form of ministry. One of the most famous chapters of faith in the Bible is found in James 2. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. The Lord's brother asked, What good is it, my brothers? If someone says that he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving him the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So Jesus is confronted with 5,000 hungry souls. Is he just going to say, be warm and be filled? Good luck to you. Hope you find something to eat. I'm sure you'll be fine. When you have real faith and you have confidence in the compassion and the love of God and his power to provide, and you understand that following Jesus means that you are often the means of doing that, that will grow your faith. Faith is grown in the context of ministry. 
One of the most famous Christians who is known for their faith is a man by the name of, of George Mueller. He was a German who moved to England who oversaw a, uh, the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. It is estimated that during his lifetime he cared for 10,000 orphans. And one day when a, friend, a friend's daughter was visiting him, he knew that they were out of food. And so he told this daughter, watch what the Lord does. So he brought in all the orphans, had them all sit down at the table, ready to eat. And then he prayed for breakfast, knowing that there was no food on the premises. And after he prayed, he heard a knock on the door. He opens it up and the local baker comes by and says, you know what? I was restless last night. I just had the sense that I needed to bring bread here. So I got up at 2 a.m. in the morning and here's all the bread. Then there was another knock on the door and the milkman said, my cart broke down. The milk's going to go bad. I have to give it to somebody. So here's the milk. Right? So you hear stories like that, but Mr. Mueller would never know that if he didn't take the risk and actually do ministry. See, oftentimes when you do ministry, you are pushed to the limits. At some point in time, you can learn all about evangelism. You can read all these books on apologetics. But for you to grow in evangelism, what do you have to do? You have to take a step of faith. Right? And the first time, right, the first time you've shared your faith, I'm sure, is the hardest time. You think about it. You pray about it. You think about Luke 12, 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And then when you do it and the Lord is faithful, it's thrilling, isn't it? Yeah, another thing that takes a step of faith is you look at the act of giving, right? From a worldly perspective, giving of our wealth makes no sense. Maybe you can justify a tax write-off. Maybe you can justify just maybe feeling good. But giving doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and there's always a lot of reasons to say, I don't know about giving. Inflation's pretty high right now. Joe Biden's still president. I don't know. What if my job is not going to be there? But then you do. You do it trusting that there will be treasure in heaven, you read Matthew 6, 31-34. Consider these promises. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Notice that promise. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. If you want to know that promise, right, and to experience that promise, what must you do? You must give. If you want to know the promise of Luke 12, 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. If you want to know that promise, what do you have to do? You have to share your faith. Do you see what I'm saying? All, a lot of these promises of Scripture are deeply tied into faithful execution of ministry. When you seek to obey God, you do what's difficult. When you do something that can't really be explained by any other rationale, then there is a God, He is real, and He is a rewarder of the good. 
When you do that, condition yourself, make that your habit, you will grow your faith. Now, it should be said that many times in ministry, these great things we attempt for God don't necessarily work out. Sometimes when you do this, you will be met with disappointment. You guys ever heard of the book Prayer of Jabez? People are going, I heard about it, I've read it five times. Um, it was written by Bruce Wilkinson, and it was an international bestseller. At $10 a pop, you were given this small booklet that taught you to pray, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, and that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil that I may not cause pain. It was taught that if you prayed this prayer and you had a marriage in conflict, you pray for healing in the marriage. If you had a business enterprise, you would pray for customers and pray that the Lord would expand your business. Bruce Wilkinson prayed this prayer as he was stuck in traffic. He prayed that God would delay the airplane so they can keep a speaking engagement, and, and it worked. And so he made a lot of money off of this, and he decided that he wanted to go big and pray the prayer of Jabez and help and serve orphans in Africa, specifically Swaziland, where he and his teenage daughter, the last remaining daughter at home, and his wife, they moved there. And their goal was to build a dream village. They wanted to house 10,000 orphans, much like George Mueller, through small houses. They would build these houses, and each, would I'm sorry, each house would house 20 orphans and an adult sponsor, like a grandmother type of figure. So they put all the, these orphans in these houses, and, and a certain segment of them would be dedicated for a, a theme, like a Wild West theme or a Swaziland theme, almost like a, a theme park. And then they would build a luxury hotel and an 18-hole golf course, and, and the idea was that this would all be self-sufficient, where you'd have rich, wealthy, white tourists come into Africa and be entertained, by these black orphans. What could go wrong? Well, the project was going to cost $190 million. And what they didn't realize is that when you basically have white people buying land in Africa to raise black orphans who will entertain rich white tourists, that does not play well to a culture that was impacted by the legacy of colonialism. And it failed. Three years later, he returned to the States. Now, Wilkinson had some reckoning to do because he did pray the prayer of Jabez over and over during this time. And it didn't seem to work. In his own words, I asked hard enough, and all we can do is ask God what to do Ask him to help us in the doing of it and to work as hard and wisely as we can. Somewhere in this, it's got to be all right to attempt a vision that didn't work out and to not to make it an overwhelming failure. Right? He grieves for the people he was not able to help. He called this the biggest disappointment of his life in ministry. Now, assuming the best, he did attempt to do a good thing, didn't he? And in the context of ministry, it didn't work out. After Jesus fed the 5,000, you can argue that this was really the high point of his ministry. This is when the crowds were most excited about him. This was when they had all these plans that they were going to come and make him king. And then he begins to teach 
strange thing. It's like the Messiah is going to die. You're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of these people were confronted with this vision that was different from what they hoped for, right? And they began to drift away. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus has a very memorable conversation with his disciples. They're, they're, they, they are watching the, the crowds thin. People turning their backs, going home. After being feasted by Jesus, they begin to fall away. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John six sixty six. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, Peter was able to look past the circumstances and look past the crowds and look past maybe some of the disappointment of things not working out the way that they hoped to the person of Jesus. By all means, when you follow Christ, there will be some triumphs. There'll be things that are exhilarating, that are special, things that almost build your faith. But there's also going to be moments when you're really going to need your faith because that's all you have. To follow Jesus, to be sustained like Peter, you have to look beyond the circumstances to the promises that someday we will see Jesus, someday we will be with Jesus, and someday everything that we have attempted for him and done for him will all be worth it in the end. And in the meantime, when it does get difficult, when you get that diagnosis, when you get that job conflict, when that child is not quite doing what you're hoping they would do, feed your faith. Feed your faith because someday you'll need it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just grateful for Jesus. And I pray that you will strengthen our faith that help us to do those things that do strengthen our faith, that you will feed our faith so that no matter what this world throws at us, as we face some of the great challenges of our age, as we face the threat of death, the shadow of death, disease, sickness, disappointment, conflict, and sin, that in the end, we will be anchored to Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.